Well, it's uh, it's sacking season. Uh, we, I guess, we waited about uh, waited a couple of years for this because last year there weren't many head coach changes, certainly not in the Premier League. Um, and I think it was a combination of COVID costs. I think partly the fact there were no fans in stadiums, which um, which had a pretty material impact on the kind of mood that um, kind of surrounds a the club. There was obviously a notable moment at. Um, at the Spurs stadium a few weeks ago, when when Nuno subbed off Lucas Moura, and kind of the booze, very rare you see that with a with a head coach. Um, so I think that's played a part, um, and we're almost back to normality. You know, everything's kind of normal again when, when coaches are getting coaches are getting the boot. Um, so yeah, I wanted to chat today a little bit about um, what that looks like. like how, how is it that coaches are so transactional um, in the world of football, uh, and then we can dig into how coaches are recruited today, how some of the kind of vacant positions might be recruited for um, today as well. So, yeah, I thought, Dan, you maybe you'd best kick us off on the, the weird world of head coach contracts. What do they look like? How are they different to your everyday contract? For sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, from from the deals that I've been involved in, obviously the, the player, uh, the coach contract looks a lot different if it's head coach, manager, you know, whatever the exact term is. Um you know, a lot of the um, wrangling and detail is usually over exit is the truth. Um, exit in terms of what happens if um, a club um, comes in for the manager. Um, how easy is it for the manager to be able to say they want to leave in terms of compensation fee, literally like a release clause um, that um, the, the, the effectively the buying club will have to trigger in order to pay then um, to the incumbent. But also on the flip side, around termination, around um, you know if things aren't going to plan, and uh, either specific KPIs around you know if the manager, uh, let's just say it's a top four team or a top ten team, if they're in the bottom half of the league for a certain period of time, if they're not adhering to particular KPIs, um, if for example um, you know they've uh, well let's just let's just call it what it is is like usually what can happen after a period of time at particular windows or after before windows there can be particular periods but you know ultimately what we're talking about usually is a few things one is you know it's pu- it's publicly known um for nuno has reported that he got given a two-year deal but at the same time there was um uh, a potential break um at the one-year level with a before uh, with a set of compensation criteria should he or not meet certain criteria i guess it would be you know for example european um, qualification or being in the top half of the league or getting close to um you know cup competitions etc and the other flip side obviously is having longer term deals where you know the the contracts might be four or five years so the david moyes one is always the example i give where um the you know he had a possibly i think it's a five or a six year deal um but the point generally was is that um, a, a substantive performance related measure was um uh, if he didn't qualify the united didn't qualify for the champions league then regardless of the term left the the club could sack moyes with um uh basically a set fee um uh, which was basically one year's worth of um, salary, regardless of the fact that he possibly still had four or five years left um, on his deal. So there's the nuances of the term and termination and release, depending on whether the, the manager's flavour of the month wants to go somewhere else, whether it's not flavour of the month and is going to be sacked and terminated. And then there's a whole other discussion point around backroom staff as well. We saw uh, um, Conte bring in um, a huge number of, well, a decent number of staff. Mourinho sometimes does the same. Um, and 
you know, I know Bielsa at, at Leeds very much. The, the reports were at one particular time that um, he negotiates um, a set amount um, in terms of budget for his overall staff, which then gets distributed um, accordingly. So um, the issues that can arise there in terms of appointing a particular manager can relate to, you know, how many backroom staff are we talking about? And the same for when sometimes a manager leaves either voluntarily or otherwise around the restrictions that the club may place on the rest of his or her staff to be able to then go with him or her for the new job um, or how long they would necessarily stay or otherwise um, at the incumbent. So sorry, I've uh, mumbled on for a few minutes there, but there's always loads of those in a way, worst case and best case scenarios that a lot of the time the agents and the lawyers will be, um, will be thinking about even before the, 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 the appointment actually occurs. Yeah, I think it's, um, I've noticed also greater sophistication um, on both sides, I suppose, around uh, the way head coaches are kind of evaluated and, and brought in. I, I know of a club that, uh, for example, um, will only kind of pay bonuses for a head coach relative to their wage bill position in the league. So in the league that they're in, they get kind of a ranking at the start, obviously, or they get kind of a perceived, um, uh, yeah, a ranking essentially at the start of the season of where all the different clubs are in terms of wage spending. And the the chairman of the club is is quite provocative to um to to the manager whoever it is saying you know you you can spend more but that decreases you know you're going to have to then therefore perform better because your bonuses are relative to where you where you lie on this this overall ranking so i think there's um yeah clubs are getting kind of savvy about the way that they evaluate coaches obviously a lot more teams are doing evaluations based on uh, underlying performance rather than just league table as well now um you know i've been involved with clubs that have chosen not to change a head coach because they've seen that their underlying kind of XG numbers have been uh, pretty reasonable. So um, it's, it's, I think if I think back to, I don't know, even kind of four or five years ago, I used to almost cringe at some of the decisions that, that were being made, but I, I think there is um, general kind of maybe acceptance of the way that things are done generally and the fact that, that, that coaches do change quite a lot in, in football now, but also I think there is a bit more sophistication the way that, that um, changes are made now as well. Can I maybe mention just what, uh, two other bits as well? Because I think, I think on that, um, uh, you know, XG numbers, league table, because um, I know, you know, underlying performance is obviously a really interesting measure. It'd be great if you... Um, we're able maybe just to speak on that in a little bit more detail because obviously um, the point is that we've seen over the years is in a way the league table lies to a degree with low scoring sports um, you know ultimately you can be underperforming or overperforming but the number the, the, the results say one thing underlying numbers say another you know how when you are working with particular clubs does does that work for you to be able to you know demonstrate the true visibility of um, how a team is performing at a particular moment in time yeah, so there's always a couple of evaluation points. Um, the first of which is just looking at the projections for the league table. We've got our own models. It's obviously the betting markets as well. You can go, okay, well, this is where we are. Um, you know, Let's say you're a team in the relegation zone um, and going, okay, well, we've got, as it stands, a 60% chance of going down. And that helps inform what type of decision you might want to make around a head coach change. Because you know, let's say it's 70%, 75%, then maybe it's not worth it because that you may end up spending a lot of money to chase the 25% odds. Um, but the other one is that XG measure, which is um, a good indicator, a good descriptor of whether a team has been kind of lucky or unlucky in recent weeks. And generally, obviously, when the new coach comes in, you tend to see results improve in the short term, and the so-called new manager bounce. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that the new manager bounces 
largely not entirely but largely luck essentially evening itself out so in the in the run-up to a coach being sacked often you see you know conversion rates for opponents tend to be unusually high and that's obviously not something a coach can control the conversion rate you know if, if opponents start scoring 20 30 percent of their shots instead of the usual 10 percent, that's just down to kind of a bit of luck really and similarly at the other end of the pitch if those conversion rates collapse and, and generally when we've analyzed it before we've attributed about 75 80 percent of that new manager bounce to be luck evening itself out uh, and the rest of it is a combination of kind of potentially slightly easier fixture list because obviously you're more likely to lose games against uh, after a tough fixture list but also you know there is an effect of a new coach coming in it's just not huge and it's also um obviously not sustainable over, over a long period of time um yeah yeah my uh, just just something that sprung to mind as well um and that was a really really great um description of the sort of underlying points is you know i'm not sure if you see it in different ways, but I've seen it with certain clubs as well, where you know effectively the the appointment um, is um, sold to the manager to a degree as a as a, a club sometimes being a, a gateway or a pathway club um, in terms of you know sometimes it might be more foreign managers or up and coming managers who are given you know either the first role or the first substantive role to be able to prove themselves and as a result in a way um, the club holds more of the cards in terms of remuneration in terms of length of deal in terms of you know termination rights and other things or release clause whatever else it might be but the promise either is is that if you do really well then we're not going to stop you from moving to a bigger club where you can perhaps extract back extract better market value for services um but at the same time be really really, pretty realistic that you're going to get a bit more leeway um if things don't go to plan early on yeah i I think um yeah that is a a good positioning by clubs i think the uh, the thing is i think a lot of coaches back themselves to um when they're going into role that yeah no you know they would see it as a as a stepping stone at a lot of clubs that you know if they do well they get the opportunity at the next level and so on um, and I think we've also seen a lot of coaches get attract, attracted to not, um, what's the best phrase for it, but, but clubs that aren't being operated that well, let's say. Um, and actually, we've done, we've done some research on this before and, and trying to predict um, coaching success. You know, what, what what are the things that you can kind of bank on that are predictive of whether a coach is going to be successful or not successful in their role? And in truth, there isn't a huge amount of defining things. There's a lot of context that... Um, decides whether a coach is or isn't going to do well um, but one of the things that um, does predict um, success and failure is is essentially the club's kind of position at that point in time and I often go back to Sunderland where you know they had repeat coaches who repeatedly failed and, and that was a strong predictor of the next coach essentially failing because it was I guess symptomatic of, of the overall issues at the club at the time when they're in the Premier League and the Championship um, so and I, I, I sympathise with coaches as well because you know they there aren't that many jobs out there um you know that in in england there's 92 um there's you know there's potentially opportunities overseas but but they can be tough they're probably even tougher now for, for british coaches in this country post brexit um and so a lot will leap at an opportunity at a club like sunderland but um it doesn't always pay off and and, and that can often set your career back uh, quite a long way so let's um pivot into something we we talked about um in in the prep for for this which was um your coveted um, manager dashboard which I'm really interested to hear a bit more of and I'm sure everyone else is but also you know in terms of the the question about 
um, you know, effectively hiring and firing mid-season or relatively early in the season so far. And for example, let's just take, you know, Villa being linked with Gerard and a few others, Lampard, etc., as it may be. Um, the, the first point I guess I had there was, you know, is, you know, based on your analysis um, and crunching a little bit of data, are the managers, for example, being linked with Villa, the ones that actually look like they're doing pretty well at the moment? Um, you know, what's your view on, on some of those sort of ideas? Yeah, I think um, it's, yeah, it's, as I say, predicting head coach success is kind of um, very, very challenging. Um, there, there are lots of head coaches that have done really well in, in a previous start, just don't do well um, in a new job. Uh, we see that quite a lot. And I think the coaches that have repeatedly done well in elite jobs, you can kind of hang your hat on, but there's probably only um, a small handful of those in, in world football, right? Um, Guardiola, Klopp, Conte. Um, well, we, we assume Simeone has obviously been at, at Atletico for a long period of time. Um, so the way that we tend to work with clubs when it comes to head coach hire is we accept that there's a lot of noise around um, head coach hires, but like with any role when you're hiring for someone, you want to try and access as much relevant information as possible uh, and understand how it relates to your situation and then kind of um, apply it to, to to see whether, you know, they've got relevant experience or whether they're, they're kind of ticking the boxes that you at least believe in would, would drive success. Um, and what, one of the things that we look at is um, like impact on performance um, and look at the kind of change in performance under a head coach. Because obviously if a, if a team improves under a head coach, then it might not be totally attributable to them, but at least there's um, there's probably some impact that they're having at the club at the time. Uh, and we've got what we call our World Super League, which enables us to compare any team in, in world football on the same league table and therefore compare any coach on the same parameters. You're able to compare a coach. You know, when Graham Potter was at Ostersund, you can compare on the same kind of scale as, I don't know, a coach in, in League One to a coach in Japan or, or wherever else and get a sense of like to what extent they've been improved under all those coaches. Uh, and I think Gerard's a really interesting coach um, from... From what he's achieved at, at Rangers, if I I've got a dashboard up here, but if, if I filter for coaches uh, in our database who have coached at a big five level historically, um, two coaches have had on average in their ten years, excepting here that that Gerard's only had you know one senior tenure, but only two coaches have got a bigger impact on performance during their their tenures on on average, um, and those two are Eddie Howe and Jurgen Klopp. Um, Eddie Howe, obviously, the impact of taking a club from League Two to uh, the Premier League, absolutely enormous impact um, and, and probably one of the reasons why um, he's he's landed the, the Newcastle job and, and Jurgen Klopp, obviously, if you look at uh, the impact at, at Mainz, Dortmund and then Liverpool um, repeatedly, obviously, huge impacts. But Gerard's third on that list. Uh, and I think a lot of people, um, at least in England, may not have the kind of truest sense of where Rangers are at, but um, we've, in kind of the last uh, two years or so, rated them as pushing kind of Premier League mid-table level. They've fallen off a bit this year. Uh, but obviously had very good Europa League runs. And so that's a kind of couple of boxes checked for if you're Aston Villa, because you're going, here's someone who's gone in and, and massively improved performance when they've gone in. But he's also someone who's been working with essentially Premier League calibre players, uh, because even though Rangers are playing in a much, much weaker league in, in Scotland, actual players at Rangers probably aren't that far off the quality of, of players at Aston Villa, maybe a little bit lower. Um, so those, those are the types of that um, that kind of clubs are increasingly armed with when they're trying to evaluate the, the coaches and um, you know, you look at someone like Gerard, and then compare him to, let's say, if I search search Lampard on on the database here, Lampard's obviously coached at at a higher level, but his impact on performance is is nowhere near um, nowhere near as good um, when you look at the kind of combination of the Chelsea and Derby ten years. Um, but one of the things he has done interestingly is is massively lowered the average ages. And so at Chelsea, 
the average age of Chelsea lowered by two years. At Derby, it was three years. Um, so he's obviously someone who goes in and plays young players. So again, from Villa's point of view, they've got a lot of academy players looking to come through and they've brought through this season. He might fit a profile um, of a particular type of coach you're looking for. So there's a huge amount of information there that, that um, you know teams can can evaluate. But it is trying to it is a challenge to be honest to make to kind of distill to the key points you're looking for, and it all comes down to I guess what a club's philosophy is. Cool. And maybe I'm overlapping with the same the same point again to a degree. But you know, in terms of then hiring and firing um, uh, before the season starts, during and maybe towards the end, you know, you talk about. Um, you know, bringing in the managers like Allardyce to get that bounce, um, who has actually had a very good record of keeping mm-hmm. clubs up until I think it was West Brom. I think yeah, um, yeah. he didn't manage to keep up just about. Um, you know how, how without obviously uh, putting you on the spot, you know the, the the idea of being able to recruit a coach well during season obviously hampers is is hampered by not having particular windows um available particular players that might be injured or otherwise particular spirals of confidence or everything else that that happens during the season um what what's your view generally of you know when club executives more generally are coming to you at different times and saying well at what point do i take the plunge and you know the cost benefit analysis of keeping a manager rather than parting company and and moving on yeah so there isn't necessarily a hard rule around changing mid-season, um, it having more or less effect than at the start of the season. Um, you know, what, what we have seen is that coaches who are poached tend to last longer in a job. Um, and that is a, probably partly because, you know, coaches who are poached are coaches who are in roles and therefore you know, someone who's employed rather than unemployed is probably on average a, a slightly kind of higher performing coach than the one who's, who's unemployed. Um but but it I think the the key question that um, clubs I guess need to ask in, in the mid season change is you know what's um, you know what what's the reason behind the decline is this decline kind of uh, temporary or permanent uh, and what's the kind of alternative um, and, and often as I say I, I think often club um, clubs hit a bad run of form that is mostly bad luck rather than kind of poor performance and, and actually the kind of upheaval that, that can come in with changing a hedge coach isn't always necessary. Um, but but also I think the, you know, the, who's out there in the market, I think is, is obviously a, a kind of key question. And most of the time, I think it's really hard to predict which coaches will come in and, and provide a bounce. And yes, there are examples to say that Allardyce who have done it until they don't. Uh, um, and even Tony Pulis to a degree, you know, can, had a performance impact where he went, but then was kind of it was. I think I think I'm right in saying it was at West Brom where performance was declining before he he left. So it's there's no as I say no hard and fast rule. I think the important thing is kind of constantly having um, a succession plan in mind, constantly having a, a kind of view on the marketplace at any given time. And and this is something that I think um, if I think of the best case study of a mid-season head coach change, it's. The, the one that always stands out to me is Southampton with um, Pochettino and, and replacing Adkins with Pochettino. And if you read interviews, listen to interviews with Les Reed, he, he was aware of Mauricio Pochettino for, for a long period of time, really admired what he had done uh, at Espanyol and then spoke a lot about how he'd worked with the types of players that Southampton were looking to kind of develop and bring in, you know, international players who played a particular playing style, um, you know, which, which obviously he's kind of executed so brilliantly in, in English football. Um, that, that that's an example of a club that I think has 
you know, historically been very good on the head coach highs on the whole and, and that higher show that their, their surveillance was working really well. And I think a lot of clubs um, are kind of happy with their coach until they're not. And then it becomes a big challenge to kind of, you know, recruit in the marketplace when, when they do make the change. We started, Omar, didn't we, on um, your point around um, the fact that over the last period of time without fans in Stadia that... Um, uh, and I hadn't really even thought of this in truth, that there'd been less managerial change. And then we saw the example of, as you said, Nuno and this particular um, booze at, at times. Have, have you guys done anything yet or is it just a feel as to, um, you know, almost the the outlier of that particular period of time where there's no fans, maybe slightly less pro, um, you know, less uh, or more of a vacuum um, in the stadium. And then more, almost in a way more of that accountability as soon as fans come back, managers feel the pressure more home and away in different ways, I guess, to be able to get those performances. Um, they had that sort of bump, but do you have a feeling at all as to, you know, whether actually there is any um, statistical deviation or whatever you want to call it between fans not being in the stadium and now being back and that those managerial changes, or is it the usual stuff around underlying performance, around worry of leaving, you know, being relegated about not getting qualification for particular, you know, if it's Champions League or Europa League or, you know, um, going for the league or not being relegated or getting promoted or and everything else in the mix. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's only really a hunch, really. But I, but I do think, you know, when, when you've got uh, owners and chief execs who, who are going to games, you know, during games behind closed doors and they're sitting in the stands, you know, it's completely quiet. And I think it makes a massive difference where at full time you've got, you know, even if at ten percent of the stadium booing, I think you know we've all been there at grounds where that happens, and and you, it does. It always feels like oh, quite tense and toxic sometimes. And I, I do think that made a difference. I think obviously you know the pandemic really pinched clubs' finances, and, and changing a head coach can be can be quite expensive. Uh, what's what's also happened interestingly in the Premier League this season is home advantage hasn't returned to the same degree as we might expect. Um, and so during again um, when the games were being played behind closed doors, there was essentially no home advantage. Um, certainly results-wise, away teams were winning pretty much as often as home teams. Uh, and I think, I, I haven't checked after the latest weekend, but um, as of the previous weekend, I, I think there were still more away wins than home wins in the league this season. And again, I think just playing at home, you know, if, if coaches are losing home games, I think it, it kind of has this effect on um, on the people making decisions. So we'll have to see, actually, whether it kind of really returns to normal, normal. Um, I think... I think I am right in saying that head coach tenures were improving slightly in terms of length of them, were improving slightly pre-pandemic. Uh, and I think the general direction is, you know, probably stabilising around kind of 18 months um, from being around kind of 15 months previously. Um, but yeah, it's, it'll be it'll be kind of interesting to see how it plays out in, in the second half of the season. And I think you often get this domino effect as well, where if teams around you are changing the head coach, then, you know, you, you don't want to miss the boat in some respects. Love it. Really interesting. Um I didn't really have too much other stuff, is the truth. I mean, I, I've just let you talk a lot of sense in truth. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, if you if you had to uh, if you had to put your money down or view down on on who you think will will kind of make um, who you thinks kind of made the, the the right decision in terms of the head coach change, would you would you be bold enough to have a have a say? You know what? I'm, I'm losing track of um, all the different ones. So, I mean, look. Um, You've got Villa, I, Norwich, Spurs, yeah. Newcastle, um, and Watford, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I was really interested in the Villa one uh, to a degree, simply because Dean Smith, I think, had done a pretty good job up until quite recently. And then you have this issue with, you know, selling Grealish and then getting 
Bailey and Ings and Buendia in, but them only really having played, I think, less than 30 or 40 minutes together in truth and everybody needing some settling in time. And it's always the case when you're trying to bring new... new. So, you know, it's always easy to see from the outside in and say, oh, well, you know, um, it hasn't worked out, but, you know, there's always nuances to everything. I, I haven't seen too many instances. I'm not sure if you're the same, Omar, for um, Norwich, for example, of a manager being sacked after a win. Yeah, I, it's, you know, it's rare, yeah. Uh, and that's why I found, you know, quite, uh, again, <laughs> another interesting one. Um, and again, the same with, with Nuno. If, correct me if I'm wrong. Did he win Manager of the Month in August? He did, yeah. And, and did. then was basically, you know, sacked um, <laughs> just over a month on. So there's, I, it feels like there's been quite a lot of strange outliers of sacking so far, which is, um, you know, in different ways, obviously Norwich very different, but a win then gets sacked. Um, manager of the month, then very quickly, it all goes, um, you know, all goes wrong. Sell your best player, but bring in three, you know, and what would objectively be called very good signings, but quickly, you know, hasn't worked that well and on, you know, a bit of a roll of defeat. So, um, I was just really interested. I mean, we haven't even really talked about Newcastle in the truth from from uh, Eddie Howe, apart from, you know, your fascinating, you know, um, manager dashboard analysis on him being so highly regarded, at least from the from the data perspective. So, you know, I'm the other bit that just to stress as well usually is again I know running slightly over but we start my fault for starting a couple of minutes late was um, you know when clubs are usually sacking someone you tend to expect that they've got someone up their sleeve pretty quickly or you would hope that that would be the case to mitigate you know it was almost I found it a bit strange with Spurs last year where they sat Mourinho just before the cup final bring Mason in and then don't you know really have anyone until the end of the season I presume they did and then you know things happen in different ways but I always find it slightly strange more generally that you know um, clubs make well, I guess it isn't necessarily a shooting from the hip decision and just fire on there and then as it goes without really having someone lined up pretty categorically ready to fill those shoes pretty quickly. And that's why the international window, um, as we're now in, sometimes is um, is ripe for managerial change. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, yeah, the, the, the implicit assumption of, of changing a head coach, um, you know, and then not having someone lined up, is that a caretaker, someone who, you know, often has no head coach experience, has kind of been in the backroom staff, whatever it is, is somehow, you know, better place to get results over one or two games than, than uh, you know, someone who's qualified in the role has lots of experience, which, which I always find a little bit of an odd odd assumption. Although, you know, maybe it's when, when you're inside a, a Premier League or Championship dressing room, maybe it can, things can get so so toxic that, um, you know, a, a change is, is the best thing regardless of, of who you're changing to. Mate, we've gone for half an hour as usual. Um it's always really great to to chat. I actually learn an awful lot from just uh, talking through stuff and, you know, never know every now and then sometimes everyone learns a contractual provision or more from me. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely do, Dan. Absolutely do. <laughs> we'll catch you, catch you in a couple of weeks, mate. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research 
and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.